0: Our scripture is taken from the second epistle of Peter, first chapter, last two verses, 20, 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word, and may we ingest the message from it. Thank you very much. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We've been talking this weekend about the reliability of the Bible. And as we think about giving people a reason for the hope that is in us, it begins with the fact that there must be a God. That is, if we have any hope whatsoever, there must be a revelation from God that directs us and how we are to live our lives. And then if that revelation is true, then we know as we have sung about this morning, as we have prayed through Jesus Christ and to God our Father, and as we have partaken of the Lord's Supper today, it is based upon the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth, that He lived a perfect life, was the sinless sacrifice, that He died on our behalf, and that He rose from the dead. Never to die again, always and ever alive and anticipating His own return to take us, His people, home with Him forever and ever. Are you prepared, are we prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us? Are we ready to give an answer, to give a defense to everyone who asked us a reason for the hope that is in us? I'm not suggesting that we're going to know every answer to every question that anyone ever has, but that we are ready to tell people about why we are Christians about uh, how we became Christians, that as we've already uh, meditated on this morning, and I appreciate the good brothers who have led us in worship to our holy God today, and as we were reminded by the good brother who led us in thoughts before partaking of the Lord's Supper that our God is a holy God, He is a just God, He is a righteous God, and it demanded a, a sin sacrifice, and it is because of, and it is only because of the grace of God and the mercy of God that we are able to have access to the Holy One because God is, Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13, of purer eyes than to behold evil. He cannot fellowship with wickedness or darkness And His throne, the foundation of His throne, Psalm 89 verse 14, is righteousness and justice. And so evil, wickedness, sin demand some kind of of punishment just as we expect just judges to rightly and justly punish those who deserve to be punished in our society today for the crimes and wrongs that they have committed. We expect such from the ultimate righteous, fair, and just God. And it is only by the grace of God that we don't have to suffer the punishment of our sins. And as was read this morning, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For a few minutes this morning, I'd like for us to look at what the Bible teaches about salvation and I'd like to look at this subject matter because there are a number of those, some of whom we've quoted already this weekend, who would suggest that you can't really know how to be saved, that the Bible's message about salvation and coming to uh, coming to receive the gift of salvation, coming, in act, coming uh, to access the blood of the Lamb, that it's impossible to know exactly how to do that because... Allegedly, if we were to, if one were to accept the Bible as God's Word and believe that heaven awaited those who gained entrance, one could never know for sure what must be done in order to reach heaven. The Bible is just too vague, too nebulous, too contradictory. For even those who seek to follow its advice, this is because Scripture clearly outlines different methods by which one can be saved, and the, the different methods are often either mutually exclusive, divergent, or contradictory. So says some skeptics like the skeptic Dennis McKenzie in his Encyclopedia of Biblical Errancy. Well, is salvation, is it really a gift of God like we read a number of times in Scripture? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 4, I thank my God, Paul said, always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. God, he reminded them again at the end of this epistle... Or almost at the end, at the end of chapter 15, that God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Are we saved by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves? Is it the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast? Or is it by some kind of obedient act? Salvation, the love of God, is not, it was not brought down from heaven to earth because of some work of righteousness which we have done, but it is according to the grace of God, that which we uh, don't deserve, but we receive. By the grace of God, we receive eternal life, but it's according to His mercy. You see, we deserve eternal punishment, but He doesn't give us that. That's the mercy of God, by which He saved us. Is salvation a gift of God, or is it a result of of what a person does? You know, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he came running to Jesus and knelt down before Him, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life, he asked. Why is it that, that Jesus commanded the rich young ruler to do something? Why didn't He just say, well, there's nothing for you to do? He said, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow Me. Notice that... On this occasion, Jesus didn't say, I am doing everything for you. There is nothing for you to do. He had already asked him, have you kept the commandments? And the rich young ruler said, I- I've kept these from my youth. I'll tell you, that's a statement I haven't heard many people say, that I've kept all the commandments from my youth, as if he was perhaps saying he had kept them perfectly and didn't need the blood of the the lamb, the ultimate lamb, to cover his sins. But there was one command that Jesus had not mentioned to him, thou shalt not covet, which this man apparently had a problem with because Jesus said to this apparently covetous individual, go and sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. Jesus said to do something. When the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? Their response was not, there's nothing for you to do to access... To receive the gift of salvation, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus said that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You recall that Jesus sent out Saul, whose name was changed to Paul when he was converted, after he was converted to Jesus Christ and he was sent as a Gentile, as an apostle to the Gentiles that they may receive the forgiveness of sins. And Paul went to the Gentiles, instructing them to do something, to repent, turn to God, and do works of repentance. How are all of these verses and others not as some unbelievers, skeptics, atheists, agnostics would contend are are contradictory? I think that it's helpful to understand the relationship between God's gifts and what man should do to receive those gifts by considering one particular gift from God that i Believe from the studies of the Old Testament, from what I can tell, is mentioned more than any other gift in the Old Testament. And we're not referring to the Old Testament because we are under the law of Moses. I've never been under the law of Moses. You have not either. It was nailed to the cross some 2,000 years ago. And even if I was alive alive at that time and was not a proselyte, I was not under the law of Moses. We are under the law of Christ today, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. Since Jesus died on the cross, His last will and testament went into effect. Lord willing, this coming Tuesday, my wife and I are going to go work up a new will because the one we have is about 20 years old now. And our oldest son was about two at that time, so I suppose maybe it's about time. You know, I've had it on my calendar, my to-do list uh, for I think years now like reminding myself to go do this and finally we're going to do this well you know that that will if we get it accomplished on Tuesday it it's not going to go in effect on Tuesday I hope not anyway it's not going to go into effect until the death of the testator and Jesus died and now we are under the new law of Christ we're under a a new covenant. But we can learn from the old covenant. Those things that were written before a time were written for our learning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, there were examples. They are for us. I want you to consider the gift of the land of Canaan for just a few moments here before we move on. Over a period of nearly 500 years, from the time of Abraham to the time of Joshua, God, I mean repeatedly, repeatedly referred to the promise of the giving of the land of Canaan to the children of Israel. And I just have a sampling of verses here for you from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that this was a gift. To your descendants, I will give this land. I will bring you into this land, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you as a possession, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel, which I have been promising to you all for hundreds of years. Never was this made more clear, I suppose, than in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses wrote, When the Lord your God brings you into the land of which He swore to your fathers to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Did they still have to walk out of Egypt, by the way? He brought us out from there that He might bring us in to give us the land of which He swore to our fathers. Make no mistake about it, the land of Canaan was a gift But Israel had to take the gift. You recall in Numbers chapter 13 that Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. Israel had to accept the gift. They had to take it. They had to receive it in a particular way that God commanded. They had to go spy out the land. They had to prepare provisions. They had to cross the Jordan River. They had to march around the city of Jericho once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day, blow trumpets and shout, and utterly destroy all that was in Jericho. They had to battle the inhabitants of Ai. They had to chase and strike down the inhabitants of the southern part of Canaan. Are you, are you tired yet? Are you weary yet? I mean, think about what all they had to do to follow the Lord's instructions, to battle their way up to the northern part of Canaan and take possession of it. After Caleb said, Give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke, Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb. Still, Caleb had to drive out the giant descendants of Anak and take the land. The Lord, and this is made so clear in the Old Testament, the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers. And they just stayed in Egypt and expected... God, to transport them miraculously into the land of Canaan so that they would do absolutely nothing to get it. No, they they went and took possession of it. God gave the Israelites freedom from Egyptian bondage, but they still had to put forth some effort by walking from Egypt across the Red Sea. That must have been some kind of event, right? Walking right smack dab in the middle of the Red Sea and into the wilderness of sure, Israel didn't earn Canaan, but they still exerted much effort in possessing it. How can you not draw this conclusion from the Holy Scriptures? It was a gift from God repeated dozens and dozens of times, and yet the Israelites had to follow God's instructions in order to receive this marvelous gift. Cities that they did not build, wells that they did not dig, trees that they did not plant. I mean, imagine just... Walking into a city that was vacated by the power of God who had prophesied for hundreds of years that this is what would happen and you get to receive that city. God gave the Israelites the city of Jericho. The walls of Jericho fell down. What a way to conquer a city right there. Just walk around it. Blow some trumpets, horns. The walls fell down after. You know this. They followed God's instructions and encircled the city for seven days. Consider the fact that manna just came down from heaven. Israel didn't deserve the manna. It was a free gift from God, yet if they wanted to eat it, they were required to put forth some effort to go get it. Could they have, would they have been a, you know, obedient children of God if they had just stayed in their tents and pouted and said, I can't believe that God is so ungracious that he would rain Krispy Kreme donuts down from heaven and not just go ahead and bring them into my tent. I mean, what would you think if you had a child like that? Let's say, you know, we have this we have this donut place, and I, I don't know exactly what the manna tasted like. I know the Scripture gives us some little indication, but we, we have this little donut place in, in Wetumpka. I don't even remember the name of it. The word heaven comes to mind when I think about the the... The, the tastiness of these things. I've put on some pounds, I believe, because I've eaten them a, a few too many times through the years. But they're so good that if you don't get there early enough, they're gone. I mean, it's like they're open for... Sometimes it seems like a few minutes in the morning, but it's, it's a few hours. But, you know, when our kids come home like from college and, and we want to treat them... Jana and I look at each other and we're like, okay, who's going to go get the donuts in the morning at 5 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday when I'm really wanting to sleep in? And so Jana just is so good and she does that, you know, a lot more than I do. and, And... And imagine what we would think of our kids if we went and purchased those. You know, we get out of bed on a Saturday morning where we would like to at least sleep into maybe about 8 o'clock, but we get up early and we go get those donuts and we purchase those donuts. And they're they're not the cheapest things in the world, but they're not the most expensive either. And and we bring them home and we put them at the foot of their door to the room that they used to inhabit that now we just let them sleep in when they come home for a little while. And, And what would you think about? My kids, if they just sat in their bed and pouted because we didn't actually come into their room and and hold the donut over their mouths and let them just eat from our fingertips. Tell you what, I didn't raise kids like that. We don't need to be raising kids to be like that. And the Israelites weren't expected to be like that. They, they were expected to take possession of of this amazing gift. And Lord willing, if we have time in the Bible class hour, we'll, we'll look a little bit more. I hope, if we, again, if we have the time, if your teacher this morning is not too slow-paced in what we're trying to get through, we'll, we'll talk more about how the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, it wasn't that God loved the Israelites more than the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. They were wicked. They were utterly wicked. And the cup of the wrath of God had filled up over a course of hundreds of years because of their wickedness, and finally God judged those nations, and He brought Israel into the land of Canaan. But this is the point I want you to really get. You know, Friday night we had one point, to err is human, but the Bible writers got it all right. Last night we had a few more points, a few more principles to study. This this lesson really just has this one right here. And that is that something can be a gift from God, even though conditions must be met for that gift to be received. This is a biblical truth. It's not only a biblical truth, it is something that you and I both know. Let's say that we have uh, two parents in here this morning who want to give there, and I'm not saying you should do this or not. I'm just saying, let's say that you give your 18-year-old, I guess we could say 16-year-old, a new car. I mean, you give it to them. Of course, new cars these days, I mean, the used cars cost about as much as new cars these days. Isn't that a strange thing? Well, I mean, I've never known it to be that way in my 47 years here on this planet. But here, let's say you're going to give them a new car. Young people, that doesn't mean you should expect a new car. I'm just saying. Um, And so you're going to buy them a new car. Again, I don't necessarily condone this. I'm just saying. And and so here's $30,000 for a brand new Hyundai that you're, you're getting from the Hyundai plant down there south of Montgomery, Alabama. And then you bring it home for them. And they get in it and take off, and they begin telling everybody about the new car that they got, that they, you know, somehow received because of their own merit. The fact is, something can be a gift from. You know, what? What was it really hard for them to take the keys from mom and dad and go and start the car and then take off in it? Did, did they somehow earn the car because they received it in that way? We could list a thousand examples, and we would all clearly understand that receiving a gift in a particular way that mom or dad or someone else tells us to receive it. Bo, Micah, Shelby, if you want some donuts, you're going to go to the kitchen because that's where they are. I'm sorry, you're going to have to get out of your room. You're going to have to go pour your own milk. You're going to have to lift your own donuts out of the donut box and eat them but you sure don't deserve them. You you didn't buy them. It was given. They were given to you. It's 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 something that we understand in everyday life, and it is something that the Bible has revealed in various ways throughout Scripture to teach us that something can be a gift from God even though conditions must be met for that gift to be received. Well, what about the spiritual promised land? The Spirit and the Bride say, come, and let him who hears, come. Let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This is the invitation of our Lord to everyone. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And by the way, repentance is not the easiest thing in the world, right? You want someone to become a Christian? You want to become a Christian though you're addicted to alcohol and maybe... You are addicted to pornography or you're addicted to something else and there's, there's some sin that you are drowning in and you want to become a Christian or maybe you are a Christian. You want to be restored to the, to, to a right relationship with God. There's something you have to do, right? The Bible makes clear of that. Hey, turning away from that sin and turning to God. But the gift of salvation, it's, it's freely given to anyone and everyone. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to be saved. Christians, like in Colossae, are those who have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. And having received Him, we walk in Him. Brothers and sisters, have you received Him? If so, then let's walk in Him. Let's not just sit around in Him, okay? Or sit around outside of Him. Because there's really no sitting around and just doing nothing as servants. I mean, think about people who you know, are working as employees or servants to a king. They're not really servants to the king or queen if they don't really do anything. You see, we walk in the light of the Lord. We walk, we are active, we are serving Him. Well, how do you receive salvation? You see, what, what Dennis McKenzie said is, well, you just can't really know because the Bible is so contradictory, it's so vague or nebulous, or you, you can't really make heads or tails of all this, supposedly. Well, receiving salvation is, as we've already noted this morning, not by meritorious works. You know, a lot of people have, they may not be aware of, they may be confused by the fact that, The Bible refers to works in different senses. When you look up words in the dictionary, oftentimes words, most of the time, words have more than one meaning. And when you are looking at the word work in Scripture, you have the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. You have Titus chapter 3, these meritorious works, but you also have works of obedience to God. They are, you know, even in John chapter 6, faith or belief is referred to as a work of God. It is that which is done in accordance with God's will in a way that pleases Him as we do something to receive, to receive the gift of salvation. Well, what exactly has God said to do to receive salvation? Some have said, and I have heard this before, read it before, received communication before as I... Uh, receive and at Apologetics Press we receive various emails where people are saying in essence there is nothing for you to do that God has done it all well God has done it all in a sense right? I mean in the sense that we were all dead in sin and there's absolutely nothing we could do we were drowning in sin there's no way that we could save ourselves We're in the middle of a sinful ocean, you might say. There's nothing we can do. We're just there, hoping for someone to save us. And Jesus came to save us. And when He threw out the life raft, He expected you to grab a hold of it. Imagine seeing a news clip of someone drowning, a life raft of some kind being thrown out to them, and them saying, what do you want me to do with this? I mean, imagine saying... "I." I, well, can you believe how unkind the person was who was saving that individual, that he didn't go out there and force that person out? You see, God doesn't force you out of the sinful ocean of, uh, of, of corruptness that is all around us. He doesn't force you out of the grasp of Satan. But you know, there's no... Reason to remain in the arms of Satan when God calls us out by the powerful gospel which crushed any power that Satan has over you or me. We have no excuses, but there is something for us to do to receive the gift of salvation. But some people are confused by the fact that three times in the book of Acts, the question of what must I do to be saved was asked in one way or another and different answers were given. And so the skeptic says, well, Eric, I mean, the Bible can't get straight what a person must do to be saved. What shall we do? They said in Acts chapter two. Well, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Well, that's quite clear. That's what Peter and the apostles instructed those thousands there on the first Pentecost after Jesus' death and resurrection there in Jerusalem. Or what was it that Paul, or excuse me, the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved to Paul and Silas? Their answer was not, nothing, there's nothing for you to do. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And what was it that Saul asked Jesus on the road to Damascus? He said, what shall I do? And Jesus said, go into Damascus and there you will be told what you must do. You know, this is quite interesting to me that that Saul, saw S-A-W, a heavenly vision, Jesus, who spoke to him out of heaven. And he asked God, what shall I do? Isn't it interesting? Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus did not tell him to believe in me, confess me, repent of your sins, and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins? He didn't tell him that. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us why, but I I do know this. That God, since the very beginning, has used His children to teach other people the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we receive the gift of salvation. God uses people. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give an answer or defense, a verbal reply, to everyone who asks you a reason of the hope that is in you. You know who that Scripture was written to? Christians. It wasn't written to preachers. It wasn't written to elders. I've heard some people say, well, the, the Great Commission was given to the apostles. It wasn't given to me. It was given to the apostles 2,000 years ago. Well, one of my responses to that is, well, whatever you think about that, but I know you can read elsewhere in Scripture, such as 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that this was something that was written to the, to the begotten, 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 3. Uh, to the elect, to the sojourners, to the pilgrims, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18 to the servants, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1 to the wives, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 to the husbands, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1 to you. He was addressing the elders who are among you, to all the Christians, to all the churches that were in the northern part of Asia Minor. You know God wants to use you, the saved, to teach the those who are outside of the body of Christ, who haven't yet taken hold of salvation, to use you to teach people to do what Ananias said to Saul, to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. But the question that skeptics ask is, why are there different answers to the same basic question? The reason different answers were given to the same question is because the hearers, the audiences, were at different places on the road to salvation? I believe that's the simple answer to a question that a lot of people have. You know, if a friend calls me and asks me how far it is from his house in Jackson, Tennessee, we'll just hypothetically call this my friend uh, Caleb Colley. Y'all know Caleb Colley, don't you? Lives in the great town of Jackson, Tennessee. Now, let's say he calls me and says, well, how far is it to your relatives there where your dad grew up in Neosho, Missouri? I would say, well, Caleb, you're 475 miles away from, from Neosho. Well, let's say that I get another phone call from, maybe it's Caleb or maybe it's a different friend that says, well, how far am I from Neosho? And I know, well, now this person is in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. My answer is going to be different. And you know why, because you're at a different place on your journey to Neosho, Missouri. Well, you're about 260 miles away. But if someone says, well, you know, how far is it to, to Neosho? And I realize, maybe it's my wife asking this, and I have her on Life 360, and she doesn't mind one bit unless she's trying to surprise me on my birthday to come up to Huntsville to, you know, I hadn't seen her in a week. I told you about that already, right? How, do you, you know, how, how did I know where she was? Well, honey, I got you on Life 360. So she says, Eric, how far is it to Neosho? Well, honey, let's see where you're at right now. Oh, you're in, you're in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Oh, you're 130 miles away. How can three different answers be given to the same question? You know because it's quite elementary. Isn't it something that when we look at things in a physical realm, using physical illustrations or examples, they so oftentimes seem to make such easy sense and make perfect sense and quite easy to understand, quite elementary, and then... You know, I just can't help but think that Satan just loves to and wants to confuse people as much as possible. Listen, he doesn't care if you're confused about your favorite football team being someone other than Alabama or Oklahoma. He doesn't care if you're confused about that. He doesn't care if you're confused, if you know, if you really like Brussels sprouts. I don't, okay, but if you're confused and you like them, I wish I did actually because... You know, I have a son who like, doesn't like sweet tea, but he likes Brussels sprouts. I think that's just strange. You know, Satan doesn't care about those things. But you know what he does care about? He cares about people not being saved of their sins. And he wants to make this confusing to people. And yet in everyday life, we can give all sorts of examples that are just really not that hard to understand. And I submit to you with attempted humility and meekness And yet, with somewhat frankness, that the Bible is not hard to understand by someone who says, Lord God, help me to just believe what you want me to believe. Help me to do what you want me to do. As we talked about one of the principles last night, we need to remember the role of supplementation. And we need to remember the role of supplementation. One of the the points we made last night is that supplementation is not equivalent to a contradiction. Because one writer or one speaker who is recorded in one area of scripture says something that's different than someone else doesn't mean they're, they're, they're contradictory. It can mean that they are complementary where one writer mentions more or less than another writer. I mean, think about it. When the Bible says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, are we to conclude by Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, not looking at any other scripture, that Jesus was the next in line, the literal son of David, who was the literal son of and not descendant of, you know, by about a thousand years of Abraham. No, the reason, how you, the reason that you properly understand Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 is because you know other Bible passages. You know that there are other passages that indicate that there is about a thousand years separating Jesus and David, and there's about another thousand years separating David and Abraham, and that's about 2,000 years separating Jesus and Abraham. When we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, how do you understand this verse? You understand this verse, most likely, quite accurately, that all is used in somewhat of a uh, relative, limited, slightly limited sense. That all have sinned and fall short of the gl- glory of God. This, as we know from other Bible passages, as we allow the Bible to supplement, the Bible writers to supplement each other, you know this does not include innocent babies and children. You know, you know that this does not include Jesus Christ who, though he was tempted in all points, as we are, yet without sin. Are football referees supposed to know only a few of the rules in order to officiate a game correctly? Imagine yesterday watching one of your football games. Just imagine how troubled and and bothered you would be if... Some of the referees in these games had only read a part of the manual, only knew a few of the rules. They didn't even know there were supposed to be four downs. They thought there were five or six downs that you get for every ten yards that you go. Would, would you be pleased if the only traffic laws that a truck driver knew was one that said uh, what side of the road to drive on? People generally understand the need to learn the entire rule book or driver's manual, knowing only a part of it will result in chaos and negative consequences. It's, it's not about, and I'm not suggesting that a non Christian has to read every word of Scripture, every word of the last will and testament of Jesus Christ before becoming a Christian. But I am suggesting to you that there are no inconsistencies or contradictions in Scripture in anything that God has to tell us, to teach us, that He's revealed to us. And when it comes to the plan that God has, to save mankind from sin, that it is perfectly, perfectly consistent. This is true regarding God's Word. Taking only a part of God's Word to the neglect of the rest of His Word is a recipe for disaster. Since the entirety of God's Word is truth, Psalm 119, 160. Since the apostles were guided into all truth, the truth that the apostles and prophets of the first century revealed to us that we have in holy writ. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 5 that, that Paul wrote so that we might read and understand the mystery of God, that the mystery of salvation that had been talked about, prophesied, pictured in the Old Testament, that was finally confirmed and revealed in the days of Jesus and the apostles and prophets and written down for us. We don't just take parts of it. We take all of it. Most Bible students seem to understand the importance of this holistic approach to Bible interpretation when considering topics such as the genealogy of Christ or, or His sinless nature. But when it comes to the question regarding what a person must do to be saved, this rational approach oftentimes is discarded. There's absolutely no contradiction between God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. And 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, the like figure whereunto baptism does also now save us, not the removal of the filth of, of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what a person must do to be saved? You know what a person must do to be saved? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. You and I know that if we are Christians, we are those who have received Christ Jesus by being buried with Him in baptism. By the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 3.21, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's where the power is. He defeated death, and because of that, because of the blood that He shed, because of the grave that no longer uh, encases His body, because He is at the right hand of Jesus that we can answer the invitation, that we can answer the call, that we can come to believe in Him and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. Because if we don't ever come to believe in Him, then we are going to be lost. Remember the role of supplementation when it comes to what the Bible teaches about salvation. If someone does not believe in Jesus, he's going to die in his sins. If we don't repent of our sins, we're going to perish. Paul said we must come to believe and confess that belief in Jesus Christ like those Christians in Rome had done. We are to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins and we are until the last breath that we take whatever situation we may find ourselves, whether here or somewhere else around the world, that we are going to be faithful to Jesus Christ even to the point of death. There's no, there's no contradiction in these passages. They are in perfect harmony with one another. Are you to come to a recognition that Jesus Christ is the Son of God to be saved? Absolutely. Must we turn away from a life of sin and turn toward Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords? Absolutely. Do do we confess the name of Jesus now and forever as our Lord, as our Savior, as our King, as, as the one who's coming to take us to a new home that He has prepared for us? Absolutely. Why the devil has deceived so many people into thinking that being immersed in water is somehow some kind of meritorious work, which it is not, Repentance is a lot more difficult to do than allow someone to immerse you in water for the forgiveness of your sins when we contact the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus that cleanses us of our sins that we contact when we are immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. Brothers and sisters, if we've done that, then let's continue onward and upward. Sadly, it seems that so many members of the body of Christ, they stop living for Christ as soon as they start. They think that somehow baptism is the end when baptism is the beginning. You see, we are born into the kingdom of God. That's when He has begotten us. And so Peter says, as newborn babes desire the milk of the Word, that we may grow thereby. And so Peter says, 2 Peter 3.18 to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's grow together. Let's go together. Let's change the world one soul at a time together. Let's be busy together. Let's love together. Let's serve together. And if you haven't begun your service to Jesus Christ today, won't you consider answering His invitation as we stand and as we sing? We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word.